Welcome to Words Matter with Katie Barlow and Joe Lockhart. Welcome to Words Matter. I'm Katie Barlow. Our goal is to promote objective reality. As a wise man once said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. Words have power and words have consequences. I'm Adam Levine. Katie's on assignment. Joe and I are honored to welcome former Justice Department and senior FBI official James Baker. For more than two decades, Mr. Baker served in various positions in the criminal and the intelligence divisions of the Department of Justice. In addition, from 2014 to 2017, Mr. Baker was general counsel of the FBI under Director James Comey and his successor, Christopher Wray. In May of 2018, Mr. Baker left the FBI and returned to the private sector. Jim Baker, welcome to Words Matter. Thanks for having me. Welcome, Jim. So of all of the players in this, you're probably the least well-known. <laughs> uh, you know, if the Jim Comey's and Bob Mueller's who've had these high-profile positions. So I reached out to a friend of mine at the FBI and I said, Jim Baker, what, what, what should I make of this guy? And I just want to read you what, what he wrote back. I'm not going to tell you who it is, okay. by the way. He says, I'm a big Baker fan, a true public servant. His little patience for bullshit, which often shows, but he's brilliant and someone who has dedicated his life to national security. That's about the highest praise I think I can hear of someone who has been in D.C. for a long time. I'm very flattered and I appreciate it. Thank yeah. you. People always wonder, what's it like in the room? And you from, let's say, 2015 through 2017, we're in one of the most interesting rooms in the entire world. The litigation of how to handle this national security threat with an overlay of incredible politics. So let's start at the very beginning. Talk a little bit about how and why this investigation started. This investigation being the FBI's investigation of Russian interference in the U.S. Uh, election system, yes. right? Yeah. yeah. So it was the summer of 2016, and we had just wrapped up too much criticism, so we thought. I mean, we, the, the criticism was real. We thought we had wrapped up the investigation of Hillary Clinton and her emails and so on, uh, which ended, as many people remember, with an interview of the former Secretary of State and then a, a statement to the press by Director Comey. And so we thought we were through our dealing with the political system of the U.S. at that point in time, the, the, you know, the, the candidates and so on. And we were quite relieved. I was certainly quite relieved. I think everybody else was quite relieved to be out of that. I mean, we, yes, we got a lot of criticism. People didn't like what Director Comey did, but we thought we were done with it. And, and frankly, I think a lot of us were kind of exhausted at that point in time. But the, the FBI has had a long-standing, decades-long focus on first the Soviet Union and then the Russian Federation. And we have seen them as a significant threat to our country, to the security of our country. It is a system that is not like ours, even though they claim to be a democracy. It's a significant threat actor on a number of different levels. And so we're always worried about Russia, always worried about Russia. And so then we started to get this information coming in from a variety of sources, including in the public, that Russia had been involved in an effort to hack a variety of systems connected to the U.S. political system, meaning in, in, in significant part the uh, Democratic National Committee, right? And so that was reported publicly by the DNC and a company that they had hired 
to help them with cybersecurity. So we're we're always focused on Russia, and then we're seeing what's happening with the with the hacking. And, and then all of a sudden we get this information that comes in from a friendly foreign government that indicates that somebody connected to the Trump campaign has himself been contacted by somebody purporting to be acting at the behest of, of Russia having to do with negative information about Secretary Clinton. And so, you know, we reviewed that and analyzed it and really – Quite frankly, it was not a difficult decision for us to go forward to open the investigation. It would have been a dereliction of duty uh, not to do it, in my opinion. We had no desire to interject ourselves into anything having to do with the political system at that point, but felt compelled to in order to execute our duty to protect the country from foreign threats and make sure that the law, the criminal laws of the United States are enforced. I'm going to pretend for a second I only watch Fox News. That shocks me. I, I thought this investigation started as an investigation of Donald Trump. You're telling me it's about a longstanding – this is my sarcasm voice if you, right. you can. This is about a longstanding national security issue. It was about Russia? It was about Russia. It was always about Russia. This is what I've been trying to say as, to as many people who will listen to me about it. Yes, it's always about Russia. That was the focus. And that I think is how you – as an institution, how the FBI can make sure that it's doing what it's supposed to do. The FBI has been granted great powers by the American people through their elected representatives under the supervision of the attorney general, and the FBI needs to be held accountable, especially when it's interacting with the First Amendment rights of Americans, the political system, and so on. And so we want to make sure that we're doing things the right way, and by focusing on the hostile foreign threat, that to me was the the way to go about it and the way to avoid unnecessarily implicating the rights of Americans. And I would assume that if the situation came that a operative for Hillary Clinton's campaign was talking to an Australian diplomat and it was about helping Hillary get elected using a foreign power and it was Russia, you would have jumped in with the same intensity because it because it was about the foreign threat as opposed to who do we help in the campaign or how does this impact the campaign? It wouldn't have mattered what candidate it was. And I'm not confirming what country it was. <laughs> right. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. but uh, just – yes, absolutely. absolutely. And, and look, I had worked in uh, on national security for a long time and remember quite clearly in sort of – I think it was 1999-2000 era when there were – we were working on a case called the Wen Ho Lee investigation, mm-hmm. which was – Very familiar con- with it. Very, yeah. Right. You, I'm sure you were. Yeah. Very controversial at yeah. the time with President Clinton. And there were allegations that somehow the that President Clinton or somebody from the administration was somehow involved with the Chinese and this was part of the – somehow part of the investigation that we were doing and, and so on. So yes, it, it comes from all directions. It doesn't really matter who the threat actor is or who the Americans are that are allegedly engaging with them. We'll look at it if, it, if it's consistent with the, the, the constitutional laws of the United States and the attorney general guidelines. You talked about this being – about Russia and you had a long career in the intelligence field at the Department of Justice. Was this something totally new from Russia? Had they tried to – and again, I know you can't go into details of things. But had they tried to infiltrate infrastructure, disseminate propaganda, any of those things that, that obviously we've now seen through the Mueller report happened here? Yeah, without going into particular details, yes, they've been trying to undermine our system for, for decades and decades, right? The Soviet Union and now the Russian Federation because they, I think they view that as a way to elevate their own status and power at the expense of us. 
So the general notion of propaganda, manipulation of U.S. population, infiltrating the U.S., infiltrating government structures uh, and organizations or political parties, that was not new. What was new was the cyber means and social media means that they were using to do that. And what was – so that was new and what was surprising I think over – that was at least surprising to me over the course of – watching Director Mueller's investigation when he once he took it over, was the level of understanding, the deep, deep level of understanding that they had about American society, American political systems, and how to manipulate us. So it was extreme, to my mind, it was ex- an extremely sophisticated and, as Director Mueller says, sweeping effort on their part. And s- sticking with the theme of being in the room, how aware were you at the time of how potentially politically explosive this could be, particularly given you'd just come through the Comey? announcement of the summer. Yes. I mean, I knew immediately this would be terrible. (laughs) Politics is terrible, isn't it? In your business, politics is terrible. Getting involved with the political infrastructure is is terrible. But again, it's just one of these things that at the FBI, this is what we're paid to do. We're paid to do the hard things. We're not paid to do the easy things. Going back to if you've just been listening to Fox News over the last couple of years, I would point out, but no, 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 no. The Steele dossier is what got you interested in this, right? That's but, incorrect. How, when and how did the Steele dossier come in? And, and it's, explain a little bit about its significance. Yeah, I remember – I don't remember exactly when the, the Steele dossier came in, which should tell you something. Like it was a piece of information that came in and we're like, OK, well – This is coming from somebody who appears to be a reliable source, Christopher Steele. It's got all this information about something that we are – that's related on its face to what it is that we're investigating. Okay, so we have to take a look at it. So let's let's look at it. We didn't just swallow it hook, line, and sinker. Yes, it was coming from a reliable source, but with any source, you vet the information as carefully as you possibly can. And so the FBI's counterintelligence division engaged in a – extensive effort to vet all of the allegations in the Steele dossier to see what we could make of them, to try to do other things to corroborate what it was that was in the dossier. So that's what we did. It was not the thing that drove the investigation at the outset, and uh, it's not the thing that started the investigation. What's your reaction to the parade of Republicans, starting with the president, you know, going down through Congress, who continue to insist that this was about politics from the beginning. The Steele dossier was what all of this was based on, despite the evidence that they have been presented. Because, you know, remember, most of these people have been included in classified briefings about how things started, and they go out and they tell a story different than what they know to be true. Well, it's disappointing significantly. It's part of the reason that about, I don't know, it's like six weeks ago or so, I started to speak out publicly on on this topic because – I thought that there was just a lot of, frankly, BS that was out there and it was a false narrative and nobody was pushing back sufficiently. There were a few of us actually in the organization who were there at the start of the investigation who could speak out and I thought that since I was one of them and since I knew enough and that it was incumbent upon me to try to push back against this narrative. And so that's what I've been been trying to do to educate the public about really what happened and that the FBI was trying to do its best to execute its responsibilities. Now, the public at this point knows a little bit about you because the president took a particular interest in you. As a career public servant, but somewhat anonymous, 
Describe what that felt like when the president of the United States starts tweeting about you. Yeah, it's an out-of-body experience, at least it was for me, being tweeted about by the president of the United States starting like right before Christmas one time when my family was home. And I remember just telling them that the president has tweeted about me and it's just – it was extremely strange. It was, uh, you know, it was odd. It was frightening. There was an element of, of, of being afraid of this, of being afraid of that level of attention. As I've said, I mean, it was, it was also great in a certain way because so many of my friends rushed to my defense and social media and comments to the, the regular media defended me. And I've said that it kind of felt like I'm a big fan of the movie It's a Wonderful Life. We watched every year with my, at, at home. And I did feel like Jimmy Stewart at the end of that thing where everybody from town rushes in to, to help him when he's, in a, when he's in a jam. And that's what happened to me over a period of time basically every time that the president would, would tweet about me. You, in a weird way, you get more used to it. I mean I think it's about a half a dozen times or so that he's tweeted about me. You, you strangely get used to it in some weird way, but it's not a good experience, generally speaking. And it had a negative impact on my career, quite frankly, because I left the FBI. I, was, I went to law fair in Brookings for a period of time, and I was looking for jobs both in the private sector and uh, with law firms. And a few employers came forward to me and said, look, Jim, we really like you. We think you'd be great at this job, but you're too controversial with these tweets and other comments being made about you, and I have been discussed quite a bit on Fox News. It's too much, and, and, and so so it had an impact. So you've been called Mr. FISA. Hmm. Talk a little bit about that process. It's a hugely complicated system with lots of checks and balances in it, but talk about FISA, the FISA court's role in the surveillance here. So FISA, the FISA, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, was enacted back in the 70s in response to many abuses of national security authorities that were uncovered by Congress during that time period. And so it establishes clear definitions about who can be surveilled. It does include American citizens. American citizens can be the subject of either electronic surveillance or physical search. That's what FISA covers. But it highly regulates the government's activities in this area. And so it requires in many circumstances that the government if it wants to engage, if it wants to do certain types of wiretaps, what people would think of as a wiretap, you know, a phone, a cell phone, email, that kind of thing, the government has to have a rigorous process, a rigorous application that gets reviewed at the highest levels of the Justice Department. So not just in the FBI, but also at the Justice Department. And then it goes to the court, the FISA court, which is a court consisting of, I think it's 11 right now. Yeah, 11 sitting Federal district judges from around the country. They're regular judges who sit in various districts around the country. They hear criminal cases as part of their normal jobs and so on. And then they take on the FISA court as an additional responsibility for a seven-year period of time. So when the government wants to do this, it's not just some FBI agent that just decides to flip a switch. It is a rigorous process that goes all the way through the deputy director or the director of the FBI, gets reviewed at that level, gets legal review over at the FBI gets management review and then makes it to the director or the deputy director, then goes across to the Department of Justice where there's an equally rigorous review. And then, after that's all done, goes to the uh, FISA court. Is this a two-page document generally or is this, you know, are there volumes here? They're very lengthy documents. Yeah, they're very lengthy documents. So it's not likely that anyone could slip something by all of those different checks and a group of judges who are, are well-trained 
to deal in foreign intelligence issues. Yeah, it's not going to make it out of the FBI field office. It's not going to get past FBI headquarters. It's not going to get past uh, my old office, the Office of General Counsel. It's not going to get through the Justice Department office that deals with this. It's not going to get past the the Assistant Attorney General, the Deputy Attorney General, or the Attorney General. It's not going to get past the FISA court legal advisors who scrub these things. It's not going to get past these judges. And and without getting into what was in the application, if you can answer this, was the focus the Russia threat or what was going on in the Trump campaign? With FISA, a significant purpose of the surveillance or the search must be to obtain foreign intelligence. It can also include obtaining evidence of a crime, but it's got to be something either focused on the activities of the of the U.S. person, let's say, who's a target here, as they relate to the foreign power. That's what you're allowed to obtain information about, or that the target, in this case an American, is somehow involved in a in criminal activity that similarly relates to the foreign intelligence activities. So it's the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. It's about obtaining foreign intelligence. Right. So again, this was about a threat from a foreign from country Russia. as opposed to the FBI looking at political intelligence to hand to people in the administration or elsewhere in the government or is just not – it's not a legitimate purpose to – for a surveillance and that kind of information, if you happen to obtain it while you're doing your surveillance, should be minimized. In other words, it should not be disseminated within the government. The president and his allies have suggested that the FBI and FBI agents attempted a coup to remove him. There were stories about the deputy attorney general wanting to wear a wire. Talk about what really happened and your perspective on what the FBI was doing and as much as you can, what uh, Mr. Rosenstein, what his state of mind was in the aftermath of Comey's firing. So there was no coup. There was no plot to have a coup. There was no conspiracy to have a coup. There was no effort to have do anything treasonous or do anything to help a foreign government. There was no effort to help one political candidate or the other or one political party or the other. We were just trying to do our best to protect the country against this foreign threat. That's what it was, and and we were trying to execute our responsibilities consistent with the laws that govern the FBI and the a, a set of guidelines promulgated by the attorney general that govern the FBI's behavior. So we have to follow those, and and we were trying to do that at that time. Look, I mean, the deputy attorney general, after the firing of Director Comey, was not in a great state of mind after immediately after that. And I think it was a process for him to to go through to figure out his way forward. And I'm glad to say that that he did in the sense that he figured out that the way forward at that point in time was to give this to a special counsel. And then I think he did a fantastic job of selecting Bob Mueller as the as the special counsel. So he he went through a challenging time in the immediate aftermath of the firing and and pulled himself out of it sufficiently to select Bob Mueller as a special counsel. Was there anything in your career that approximated the stress level and the threat to the FBI and our justice system that people in the room felt after Comey had been fired? When you start reading stories in the New York Times about the deputy attorney general offering to wear a wire on the president, you're getting into some pretty weird territory. Can you talk a little bit about that, about just how it felt? Well, it wasn't great. Look, I think the the 
without a doubt, the worst was 9-11 itself and the immediate aftermath of that, right? Many Americans had been killed and the country was under threat. And so that was just unique. (laughs) After that, there was a whole issue that we faced with respect to a warrantless surveillance program that President Bush had authorized, which eventually the public came to know as Stellar Wind. That was pretty challenging for me personally, dealing with that right after 9-11 and me, frankly, resisting some efforts by the administration not to inform the FISA court about what was going on at the time. And at that time, one of my biggest uh, supporters was Director Mueller, who you know basically mentored me and helped me through that process. And so when it came to the challenges that we were facing with Jim Comey's firing and so on, I mean, I guess the, the, the answer is I felt as though like, look, yeah, this is bad. We've been through bad things before. We've got to keep level heads and stay focused on what it is we need to do because if we don't, then our adversaries are going to benefit and the adversary there is the, is the Russian Federation in, the, in that case. And so that's what we needed to do. We needed to stay focused and maintain our cool heads. How much damage has the president done to the FBI, to the Department of Justice, to the rule of law in this country? That's a hard question to answer because it's so broad. So with respect to the FBI, look, it's a very resilient organization in in the sense of the people there are resilient. They're used to dealing with very challenging, difficult situations. They're investigating crime and threats to the country all the time. So they're used to dealing with the bad elements of, of the world. At the same time, the constant attacks on the reputation of the organization and saying that, well, there were a few bad apples, now we've gotten rid of them and so on and so forth. I mean, I, I okay, I understand that as somebody who's left the FBI and probably falls into that category, at least in some people's mind, as being a bad apple. But the people who left are people who came up through the culture of the organization and spent many, many years, decades in some instances at the FBI. And so – To me, that's sort of a a backhanded way of attacking the culture of the organization and I don't think that helps. I don't think that helps morale. I don't think it helps recruiting. That's one of the critical things that I'm worried about. Are people, young people today starting out their careers, are they looking at the FBI the same way that, that people did before when I was starting out? Talented people have so many opportunities, especially the people that the Bureau needs who have technical skills, computer scientists, cyber related folks. Are those people going to say, ah, that's just not worth it. I don't want to ever end up like those people. I'm going to just go to Silicon Valley and work there. That's the threat, the the recruiting threat. And then frankly, the the FBI, in order to be successful, needs the support of the American people because we go out constantly and knock on doors and ask for help. And we need people to think positively about us and believe that we're adhering to the law and not a bunch of coup plotters who are off the reservation doing some crazy stuff. It's in the country's interest to have a highly functioning, well-respected FBI. And it is an organization that has a lot of power. It needs to be held accountable, absolutely. But there are mechanisms to do that. It's under the control of the attorney general. There is the inspector general. There are various committees in Congress that can do that. And so there are ways to hold the FBI accountable without tearing it down. You mentioned that you have not talked publicly about this until about six weeks ago. And, right. I, and I think you, you did an interview with our friends over at Lawfare and you said that you, you did so because you were sick and fed up with all the BS surrounding the origin of the investigation and that you wanted to reassure the American people that it was done, at least as far as you knew, in a lawful way for legitimate reasons and was apolitical throughout. So as you sat and watched 
the Mueller testimony. You must have been pretty fed up when you listened to some of the questions and listened to some of the alternative theories. Talk about some of those origin story myths that I call them in the context of what you watched in those hearings. Well, I mean, I've tried to say that the, it started out because we were focused on Russia. We were learning what the Russians were doing during that summer, and then we got the information pertaining to George Papadopoulos. We then looked, con- conducted a logical investigation consistent with prior practice of how you do a counterintelligence investigation and consistent with the attorney general guidelines as well as the, uh, the in- internal FBI guidelines that, that we have. So – that was it. We just went about our business like we like we do when we're conducting a counterintelligence investigation. Obviously, it was in a different context. It was dealing with a, a, a different manifestation of how the Russians were seemed to be operating. But we had to try to figure that out. And one of the things is that I think people under, need to understand is that when you start an investigation, it's like asking a question. You don't know where this is going to go. You don't know who's responsible for this. You, especially if you're trying to do it in a basically a secret way, right? You don't want to tip off the Russians to what you're up to, and you don't really know who, you, you don't really know which Americans you can contact. So you start in a way that's extremely careful, so you don't give away what it is that you're up to. How often does the FBI begin an investigation that turns up nothing? Is that something that happens often? It happens often. Yeah, it happens often. There are thresholds in the attorney general guidelines with respect to when the FBI can open different types of investigations and to open an investigation that involves intrusive activities. What you need is information or an allegation that there's a threat to the national security or that criminal activity is 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 ongoing. That's what is required. And the FBI opens all kinds of investigations regarding a variety of different things that that fit within the AG guidelines, especially if you think about in the terrorism area, where post 9-11, we want to run down every single tip or lead that we got with respect to a potential threat. And so we we've become quite good at at sorting through all of those in the counterterrorism area. But we get them in the counterintelligence area too as is as in every other line of our business and we follow the facts where they lead us. Even before Director Mueller was sworn in and the ranking Republican member on the committee, Doug Collins of Georgia, and we're going to play a clip of what the ranking member said. One element of this story remains the beginnings of the FBI investigation into the president. I look forward to Mr. Mueller's testimony about what he found during his review of the origins of the investigation. In addition, the inspector general continues to review how baseless gossip can be used to launch an FBI investigation against a private citizen and eventually a president. Those results will be released and we will need to learn from them to ensure government intelligence and law enforcement powers are never again used and turned on a private citizen or a potential or political candidate as a result of the political leanings of a handful of FBI agents. In my experience, I think Joe's experience, FBI agents and Department of Justice personnel spend their entire lives trying to be apolitical. That's correct. When you listen to something like that and knowing that the men and women that you served with, just give us your reaction. It was not based on baseless gossip. It was based on information from a a friendly foreign government that we have a close relationship with that is has provided the FBI in the past over many, many years reliable information. But it was look, it was an allegation. It was an assertion that a conversation had taken place and certain things were said. 
and it was about a threat to the national security and potential violations of criminal law. That's not baseless gossip. That's an allegation that the FBI has to investigate. And the organization has people in it, right? That's what the FBI is. It's an organization of people. People have views about lots of different things. People have political views. The point is that they don't bring them in to meetings and to their official activities. They don't talk about them when we're doing our business. If you go out and have a cup of coffee or a beer with a friend or something like that, that's one thing. But nobody, in my experience, brought that into the office, especially in this case, and let it impact their official actions, either what they did or what they failed to do. I did not see that, even from Pete and Lisa, that their official actions were consistent with law and consistent with uh, FBI policy. And Pete and Lisa were? Lisa Page and Pete Strzok, who, you know, have all the texts that have been the subject of many discussions. They were important people in uh, with respect to these investigations, but they were not in charge of the FBI. Right. They were not in charge of everything. And they were under the supervision of the director, the deputy director, myself, and a few others who were aware of what was going on with respect to this investigation. And when I learned that the text existed, I recommended to the FBI and the FBI did engage in a separate review and almost immediately to see whether there had been anything that, had, that they had done or failed to do with respect to, at that point in time, the Hillary Clinton investigation. We immediately went and looked back through that file to assess whether they had done anything. And it, it, it's described in the Inspector General report. And at the end of the day, my recollection is that they didn't find anything of significance. I'm not going to do these Sarah Sanders and say the rank and file of the FBI have told me because I don't know a lot of people in the FBI. But certainly my impression from my time in government was the FBI agents are uniformly skeptical of politicians, Democrat and Republican. But, I mean, how how disappointed are you in someone like Devin Nunes who has been briefed on all of this, who at the hearing, the Mueller hearing last week, threw out some – tinfoil hat crazy theories about how this all got started when he knows it not to be true. Yeah, well, it's disappointing in the extreme. And I had had some interactions with, now he's ranking member Nunes, with respect to some legislation that the FBI was was involved with, national security related. And he was extremely supportive of us, tried to help us, wanted to see the legislation get passed. And so that was a, that was a positive Relationship, So I, I, I simply cannot figure out what has happened. I just can't. Let's broaden this a little bit. Give me a sense, a very broad sense of what you thought of the hearing. What did you think of Special Counsel Mueller's performance, which has gotten a lot of attention, uh, and what you took out of it at the end of the seven hours? Well, a few things. One, I think, going back to what we talked about before and especially something that I was focused on, he stated quite clearly that his investigation – that was built upon the investigation that we had started was not a hoax. It was not a witch hunt. You just can look at the 448-page report and all the investigative steps that that he and the team took to conclude that it was not. That was an extremely thorough investigation based on real allegations. So I think that was one of the one of the key things. I think he also highlighted effectively the fact that we are still we still face a threat from Russia. That the activities that he described, he didn't really talk about it yesterday, but he had talked about it in his prior press statement that he gave when he was trying to get out of going having a hearing. But he used the phrase that the Russians were engaged in a concerted attack on the U.S. 
political system conducted by intelligence and military elements of the Russian government. That is pretty significant. I mean, and something that we need to stay focused on. So I thought I thought he did a great job of articulating that. He did also, and I think rightly so, call out people who say, well, it's not such a big deal if a foreign government approaches you with information. If it helps you, you can take it. You can think about talking about talking to the FBI or not, which include people like the president of the United States who have tried to downplay that. And I think he pushed, he, Director Mueller, pushed back on that quite a bit. So I thought, I thought that was effective. Look, Director Mueller is a, he's a prosecutor. He's a by-the-book kind of guy. And and that's what you got. He told everybody that he was not going to go much beyond uh, his report. He didn't feel as though he should for a variety of different reasons. He got guidance from the Department of Justice that said, don't go beyond the report. And he stuck to that. He's not a flamboyant storyteller or a showman. That was never going to happen. And folks didn't get that. I know there's been criticism about his performance and so on. I think that was perhaps built on unrealistic expectations. But the reality is he's in his 70s and he's been at this a long time, which is great, which gives him the experience and the perspective to try to do this. But he's not a 40-year-old anymore. And I think, frankly, also, I think he was a bit nervous probably at the start. There were so many expectations about what he was going to do. One group of people viewed him as some type of savior. Another group of people viewed him as the devil. And so he was just, I think, trying to be himself and stick to the stay within the bounds of the constraints that he felt were on him. As you know, Jim Comey found out that the group of people can often change on whether you're the savior or the devil on the turn of a dime. But Absolutely. I, it, you know, it struck me that what Director Mueller more than anything wanted to do was not become the narrator of this story, that that's what Democrats wanted him to be. Uh, but Democrats were prepared for him not to be. Because if you notice, they had every citation. They were ready for him to say nothing. And it was less dramatic. He's, and he's not Jim Comey. Who Jim Comey is a storyteller, is a someone who provided a narrative to Congress. And I don't say one is right and one is wrong. They're different people. They're different people. Do I wish Director Mueller was willing to be the narrator? Of course I do. Because the only other way to get at this story is to get the fact witnesses in. And right now, the Congress can't. And that's a very complicated legal issue that will get resolved, certainly not on my timetable. You highlighted the his words on the sophisticated attack from Russian military and intelligence. I was struck by in seven hours only one Republican, uh, Representative Will Hurd from Texas, even acknowledging that Russia had attacked us. Thirty-something other Republicans felt like it was their duty to point out what the FBI did wrong as opposed to who was trying to attack us and to defend their president. Did that strike you at all as unusual? Mm, Maybe I've gotten used to it over time. And so the answer is no, it didn't strike me as unusual. I expected them to to go after the investigation, to go after Director Mueller, which they did. There were a few new theories that I heard that I hadn't heard before about the origins of the investigation or some other alleged misdeeds. But no, it, it, didn't, it didn't surprise me, I guess, is my answer. One thing I would say, though, is if the concern on the Republican side is that somehow this investigation, these allegations, delegitimize the election of the president or his presidency or stand in the way of his agenda and so on, or they're concerned about the impact that it'll have on the, on the 2020 election, 
and therefore they don't want the country to pay as much attention to it and to take the steps that are necessary to de- to defend the the republic i think that's extremely short-sighted and dangerous on many levels not the least of which is there's no guarantee that the russians are going to stay supportive as the intelligence community concluded of president trump because their main goal is to to denigrate and disrupt the United States to interfere with our ability to achieve our interests around the world. And they could turn on a dime against him at any moment if they thought it was in their interest to do so. And I would not be shocked if that were to happen at some point in time in the process of of building up to 2020 or after – assume he gets reelected after that. If he if if he doesn't do what they think he should, then they might go after him. And at you know in 2021, they're going to start to focus on 2024. I made some notes as I was watching about what I think anyone who hadn't read the report, but just had read the papers and had seen Bill Barr and all of that. First was Trump wasn't exonerated. Correct. You're going to play the role of Bob Mueller here. Yeah, so. yeah, he was definitely not. It's quite clear if you – anybody who reads the report, it's clear that he was not exonerated. I thought it was interesting that in the questioning from Congresswoman Demings that Director Mueller indicated that he thought the written answers were not truthful. And those written answers were delivered under oath. Did you catch the significance of that? Yeah, I, I absolutely and what do you th- what do you think it means? I think it means that the, that the a general assessment was that all of the president's responses were not truthful. The, the question was a little bit convoluted and the answer was a little bit unclear as well. But I think a, a fair reading of it is that the director Mueller and his team had questions about whether the president's responses were truthful, which is shocking. That 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 is shocking. And, and if – I don't know what, to what extent that played into their – decision not to uh, subpoena the president and to force him to answer questions under oath, but it may have. Based on your law background and your history, not speaking for the FBI, but based on what you heard yesterday, did the president obstruct justice? So I think a fair reading of the report, looking at all the different instances that they that they went through, in in certain instances, especially having to do with former White House counsel Don McGahn, I think a a fair reading of the report is that the special counsel's office concluded that there was sufficient evidence on each of the elements of obstruction with respect to a few of those instances. Therefore, I think it means that the president, in fact, at least based on the conclusions of the special counsel, did commit the offense of obstruction of justice and therefore could at some point in time, be held accountable for that. Director Mueller, in one of his complete sentences, as opposed to, yes, correct, or I take your question, at one point said that not only is taking political dirt from a foreign adversary wrong and unethical, it's criminal. What did he mean by that from your perspective? That it's a violation of the federal election laws, that you cannot take things of value like that from a a foreign government. The Federal Election Commission commissioner put out a public statement to that effect a few months ago when there was some some discussion about that. There's a whole discussion in Director Mueller's report about whether certain instances, especially around the offers by the people allegedly connected to the Russian Federation or the Russian government 
you know, to provide assistance to the Trump campaign. And there's a whole long legal discussion about whether that action was a violation of law. And so that's a that's a bit unclear at the end of the day. But I think as a as a general principle, yes, it, it, it could be a crime. And one thing to think about, look, I mean, I have never been involved in a campaign, but there's a lot of people that work in campaigns and a lot of young people work in campaigns. And so like if I was a parent of, of, a, of a kid who was interested in working on a campaign that was willing to accept assistance from a foreign government that therefore could be a crime, I would not advise my son or daughter to be involved in that campaign because that's just, A, quite frankly, it's unpatriotic. It is simply unpatriotic. B, it's potentially illegal. And I don't want my kid involved in that if they get sucked into some meeting where that, you know, somebody talks about something stupid about uh, accepting something from a foreign government or something like that. No way. I mean, that just uh, that is just crazy to me, just yeah. on a parental perspective. You, of course, the irony of your answer is with President Trump, it was his son who solicited the negative information in the Trump Tower meeting. But we'll leave that be. And in another one of his complete sentences, uh, Director Mueller said that the president encouraging a foreign hostile state actor, WikiLeaks, to cooperate and help his campaign was the understatement of understatements. It was an understatement that it was problematic. React to that. Again, I, I'm, I've not been involved in, in politics in that way. I understand that it's a tough and dirty business for, often. I, I, I get that. I mean, I'm not naive about that fact. But there are some limits. And there are limits when you have this level of interaction with a foreign government. The elections in the United States are supposed to be decided by Americans and not influenced at all by foreign governments. They don't have our interests at heart. And so we need to keep those types of influences out of our system. And whether they come directly from the Russian Federation or some entity like WikiLeaks or somebody else, because these are very creative, resourceful people. They're highly motivated. They're going to come up with some new thing in 2020 and beyond. And so we have to be alert for that. If any person goes into uh, politics and a campaign with the general view that it's okay to accept this kind of assistance from a foreign government, that's outrageous. This is the area where I can offer some expertise, having worked in five presidential campaigns. I can't think of anyone that I've ever worked with. And I actually at one point, you know, put out on Twitter that all campaign people should take the pledge that I've never done it and I never will and got an overwhelming response. Across the political spectrum. Across the political spectrum, Republicans jumping in and saying, you know, that that they wouldn't do it. It's just on her. And you're right. It is a tough business and people do go to great lengths to get information and people have on more than – a few occasions put out false information, but the idea of cooperating with a foreign government that's trying to undermine our democracy is, I believe, unprecedented, and it is just something that's so beyond the pale. And I'm afraid that we've become numb to it, that somehow it's been normalized by this president and his team, and it didn't shock the system the way it should have. No, it's, it's, it's terrible. It shouldn't be acceptable in this country. And I think people should really think American people, the American people should really rethink whether this is something that should be normal, whether this should be acceptable. It shouldn't be. I thought Congressman Maloney from New York had an interesting theory on why the president wasn't subpoenaed to testify. He went through possibilities, you know, either 
you were afraid to do it and you flinched, and I think Director Mueller said I didn't flinch, that tied up too long in the courts, or that he didn't need it, that what Mueller was really trying to do here was to hand this off, to hand a roadmap like Leon Jaworski did in 1974 and say, here it is. I've done everything that you need to do. I don't need to have the president testify because it's here. It wouldn't add anything. But what did, when you heard that part of it, did your ears perk up a little bit? Yes, I, I noted that as well. And I guess I had a couple of reactions to it. On the one hand, I mean, I understand that he probably, if in fact he assessed that in his written answers, the president didn't tell the truth, then he probably wasn't going to tell the truth in a grand jury setting or an interview or whatever they eventually worked out. And he was looking at the number of months that would be involved in litigating this and the delay that result from, from finishing his investigation. He probably just decided it was, it was not worth it. So logically, I understood that. I also thought, having been involved in the Clinton email investigation, I cannot possibly imagine the criticism that we would have faced had we not insisted on an interview with the former Secretary of State. She agreed to that. There was negotiation about it and how it was going to happen. We didn't have to – my recollection is we didn't have to subpoena her. I think there would have been an outrage if we had not interviewed the, the former secretary. If somehow we had closed the investigation without interviewing her or subpoenaing her and sticking her in a grand jury, no matter what we thought about her credibility, I, I just thought that would have been unacceptable and we would have been you know, attacked left and, and – well, probably from the right on, on that significantly. I don't accept the view that people didn't learn anything from the report because, first off, most people didn't read the report. So I think people learned a lot yesterday. I think we learned more than was in the report with a few moments that we've highlighted here. What's your view on what Congress should do? Congress has to get its act together. Congress has tremendous authority under Article One. The president was talking about his powers under Article Two the other day. Congress has enormous power under Article One, What's happened over, I think, decades is it has just forgotten how to exercise those powers or it's that the members are so afraid of not being reelected that they're reluctant to assert those powers in the greater interests of the American people. Of course, they have to be attentive to the, to the people. They have to execute the people's will without a doubt. But at the same time, they're supposed to be leaders and to lead our country in a way that they think is appropriate and educate the people and bring the people with them. They have the platform to do that. They have the authority to do that. And they need to do that in order to defend our constitutional system. So Congress needs to, to wake up and, and do this. And, and if they don't, I think people, the American people really need to think deeply about who it is we're sending to that institution. And if the leaders can't get their act together and figure out how to deal with this current situation, then maybe they shouldn't be there. And is getting their act together opening an impeachment inquiry? Whether you open an impeachment inquiry or not, there's an ample basis in the report that's been out there now for months to base an impeachment inquiry. Looking back and, and, and reflecting on the stuff that I've worked on and been close to, when there wasn't an impeachment inquiry started immediately after Director Comey was fired because of the Russia thing. I was shocked that somebody didn't start an impeachment inquiry at that moment. And so, like, everything else that's come since then is worse. And so, or just as bad, I don't know how to categorize it exactly, but there's more than enough information there if the Congress of the United States, the House of Representatives, wants to start an impeachment inquiry. 
I want to come back to the potential long-term damage to the Department of Justice, the FBI, the rule of law, and focus in a little bit on the attorney general. You have known him for a long time, have worked with him, worked for him. It strikes me from a, from a personal point of view that that currently he's doing more damage than anyone except the president. And I thought it was outrageous the way he delivered the report and mischaracterized it and led the American people to believe that the president was exonerated. I don't know Bill Barr, though. So to me, he looks like a political partisan who's on the other side that I have nothing but hostility towards. You do know him. What's going on over there? Yeah, so just to be uh, accurate, I mean, I don't know him super well. I did work for him at at Verizon when I was there, when he was the general counsel. And I've, I've always thought of him as a super smart, articulate, thoughtful person of integrity. That was always his reputation. That was certainly his reputation at Verizon. I cannot completely explain what's going on now. Look, he, he has always been a strong defender, I guess you would say, a strong defender of a president's authority under Article 2. That, that was clear. I think that was clear when he was nominated, before he was nominated, and, and during the hearings and so on. And so I believe he views his role as in part defending the, the powers and the prerogatives of the presidency. I do not understand and I, I agree that there are concerns. I have concerns about how he has characterized Director Mueller's report. I'm quite concerned about the statements he's made about the FBI engaging in spying on, an, on the American people. He has tried to explain that he doesn't think that the word spying is negative. I, I don't agree with that. I think most American people, especially in the uh, uh, context of, of political campaigns would think about spying as doing something nefarious and unlawful and and so on. So I, I, I don't – I do not think that that was helpful. I'm not sure that I agree – well, I don't agree, I guess, that he's, the, you know, number two in terms of damaging the institution of the Department of Justice. But I do, I do worry about whether he is thinking long-term about his own credibility and about the credibility of, of the institution that has to go into court every single day around the country and be well-respected by judges and juries who should really have no doubt about the truthfulness of what is being filed by the United States Department of Justice in a federal court, the words that are coming out of the mouth of an assistant United States attorney in a federal court. Courts must have complete confidence that everybody that works for the Department of Justice is it tells the court the truth at all times, full, complete, accurate information. There's no omissions of any significance because that's how the justice system functions on a day-to-day basis across the country. Judges and juries need to believe the words that come out of the mouth of the representative of the Department of Justice. I want to finish with a story you wrote. Uh, when I guess when you decided to speak out, you wrote a piece for Lawfare. I think the headline was, Why I Don't Hate Donald Trump. You quote Martin Luther King. The story to me evoked Nelson Mandela, who you know famously talked about the importance of reconciliation, the importance of facing you know the, your adversary and forgiving them. Listening to your story, 
it was a little surprising to me that the word you probably used more in that story than anything was the word love. Talk a little bit about why you wrote it and why that sentiment, because this is a guy who's done damage to you. This is someone who singled you out. This is a person who is vicious when it comes to anyone that opposes him and couldn't care less about you or your family, about what damage he may have done. You're just a target. And you wrote about the opposite. So, yes, I mean, I left the FBI and I was trying to reflect on my experience. And I happened to read Dr. King's letter from Birmingham jail that Jim Comey had recommended and talked about many times in the past. And I stupidly had never read it before. And so I finally did. And I was like, wow, this is really impressive. And I just started to think as I read it, my goodness, you know, the the circumstances that Dr. King had to deal with in the civil rights movement and the violence and everything was obviously extremely challenging and frightening. And he responded to that talking about, about love and dealing with his adversaries on that basis. And so I just started to think to myself, well, hmm, what would he do? What would he recommend to us, the American people, in this current circumstance where we find ourselves? Where so many people who uh, oppose the president speak in hateful terms about him. And it extends to people in the administration and his supporters and so on. And it was just my, I just didn't think that was, that was not the way that I wanted to proceed. That just struck me approaching the president, even though he made the statements that he's made and the Fox News statements about me that have been been, been negative. I, I just – I don't want to be a hateful person and I just refuse to respond. And I think quite honestly that's a form of resistance by not being sucked into I think what he and others want people to do, which is to hate them because then I think it makes it easier for them to respond in kind. I just don't think it's – the right thing to do for me personally. It doesn't help my family at all. And it doesn't help the country. It doesn't honor the country. It doesn't, for me personally at least, it doesn't honor the people who sacrificed everything that they did to give me the freedoms and the opportunities that, that I have to go around the world being a, a hateful person. I just don't think it's it's the right thing for the country. We have to move forward together. And I was just reading some quote the other day by Abraham Lincoln. I don't have it in front of me, but basically – he was saying back uh, early in the, uh, I think before the Civil War, something along the lines that at the end of the day, a foreign government or foreign power is not going to be the thing that brings us down. It's going to be us committing suicide together by going after each other internally. And and that, I just do not want that to happen to the United States. And so I need to do what little I can from my my perch to at least speak out. And I think what is a more positive way. I want to go back to where I started and thank you for your dedication, for devoting your career to defending this country and defending the principles. I think it's an extraordinary career and an extraordinary way to look at what's happened over the last couple of years. Again, I I would refer people to the Lawfare blog to look at that piece. As soon as you leave here, I'm going to write back to my former colleague of yours and concur that I now, too, am a big Jim Baker fan. Well, thank you. I we appreciate, appreciate you coming on. It's, I think it's extraordinary times and hearing straightforward explanations without spin, without political bullshit is essential in these times. And you know what? Maybe a little love, too. Thank you. <laughs> okay, thank you. Thank you. 
Joe, that was a fascinating conversation with Jim Baker, really insightful in terms of the investigation. Let's talk a little bit about your impressions of the hearing, the politics and and everything else. What'd you think? Yeah, let me say first that Jim Baker is an extraordinary guy, and there are a lot of people in Washington, D.C. like him that you're never going to hear about. It's just outrageous that the president has, has gone after him and impacted him the way he did, and his response to it is remarkable. But there are real patriots um, in this town who who protect us every single day. You'll never hear about them, and they are undermined by those fools uh, on the Republican side who embarrassed themselves at the hearing uh, last week, uh, and by people like Bill Barr, who puts partisanship in front of his country. You know, if you walk into the CIA, you see a bunch of stars on the wall, and you'll never see a name. But there are people who've given their life or devoted their life to protecting this country. And it really was an honor to sit and mostly listen and, and talk to Jim Baker. So let me put that out there before getting into the politics. Absolutely. Now, let's do the politics. Now, let me tell you what I really think. I think a lot of people expected uh, on the Democratic side that Mueller would show up and save this. And he would provide a powerful narrative of the reason President Trump is unfit for office. And they were always going to be disappointed. I don't know that I, – I think I was a little surprised, just a little surprised, that he was as reticent as he was. But it struck me that he was going out of his way to make sure that he would never become a narrator for this story on video. His only role would be, I wrote this report. And it was very frustrating and at times hard to watch because you knew from reading the report that this guy had very strong feelings about this, and he just wasn't going to express them. It seemed he didn't want to be the person that put the nail in the coffin, so to speak. Yeah, but he did build the coffin. Right. Uh, and he wants the Democrats to, in, in the House and the Senate, to bury it. Joe, you talked a little bit before about the, the book and the movie here. Um, what do you say to those people who are disappointed with the movie? I think people who are most disappointed are the ones they didn't read the report uh, but many of them I think tuned in because this was a spectacle and very early on they learned some very important information that they didn't have before one was the president was not exonerated people learned if they were listening carefully that the president answered questions and he lied Mueller wasn't going to say he lied but he, when he was asked if they were truthful he said no we learned that he obstructed justice, that he tried to fire the people that were investigating him. And he directed his White House lawyer to create a false document to cover up the fact that he was firing the guy who was investigating him. I, I think most people, have, had they just listened to Bill Barr three months ago, they, they didn't know that. Joe, is impeachment dead? I'm not sure impeachment was ever alive. So to say, to somehow imply that the Mueller hearings killed it is wrong. I think there's a both a political and a moral calculation going on within the leadership of the Democratic Party. People say, oh, Pelosi's not doing what she was elected to do. She's just playing politics. She has got the larger national interest in mind here. It's not about her speakership. I actually subscribe to this idea that she does have the broad national interest in mind. 
So for all of the pro-impeachment people, I'm talking to you, Philippe, right now, understand the consequences here. And the consequences are he poses an existential threat to this country. We should and cannot do anything that makes it easier for him to get reelected. And if that's a political calculation, God damn it, I want Pelosi making that political I need her to make that political uh, calculation. It's because it is, as much as he needs to be held accountable, he can't be allowed to do four more years of damage. So it's not dead, but we're going to go through some more steps and the investigation will continue and Pelosi will decide. There's nothing simple about it. There's nothing politically superficial about it. The, the people who criticize her, I, I would love to see them walk one day in her shoes. This is the single most consequential decision of the last couple of decades. And how she does it and how it turns out will in many ways impact the future of our democracy. Uh, so for everybody who's got your opinions, you're, you're welcome to them. She's got to make the decision. And frankly, what Nancy Pelosi doesn't need is any more people giving her advice. So I'm going to stop. Well, thank you so much, Joe. That's all we have time for this week. Uh, we'll be back next week. Well, we'll have a lot to talk about after the debates. Thank you for listening to Words Matter. Please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers.